Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray that as we hear it read, as we uh, meditate on it, even as we sing it, that your word would be, be bringing life to us. Not just life, but your life impressed in, upon us. Father, again, we thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, so just a couple of minutes ago, Bob said we don't make political statements here at the church, and I'm about to make a political statement. Uh, uh, my statement is I'm burnt out on politics. Uh, I'm incredibly cynical, skeptical of all things political. Now you might say, oh, well, welcome to the club. We all are. Uh, but that's coming from someone who used to be incredibly enamored with all things political. Uh, this past Wednesday, I had uh, an opportunity. It was the first chance I've ever had to go in and speak with the junior hires at Jay Crazy's. And that was awesome. I mean, the junior hires are great kids, uh, great volunteers, and, and Doug, um, and Doug's awesome too. And just had a great time, but the topic he gave me was, was fear. And I went in to talk about one of the, the greatest fears that I've had to overcome in my life, and it's this. It, not speaking in public, it's ministry. Um, I grew up in a pastor's home, and it was not a great experience for me. Uh, there was no line between church life and family life. It just all bled together, and everything uh, was church life. We had people in our home, and our home was always right across the parking lot from the church, and we had people in our home 24-7. We would sometimes go to bed and people would still be in our house watching our TV and eating our food. And I was bitter about that as a teenage boy. I want my food for me. Uh, but it felt like we were always under the watchful gaze of church people. You know, if I, if I sassed my mom, that was bad enough, but I did it in front of a deacon or, you know, a trustee or, yeah. It was just always, always under the microscope. And I went off to college, and my church had gone through kind of a, a really painful church split right before I went off to college, and I went away saying, I will do anything but ministry. I don't want to put my family through that. I don't want them under that constant scrutiny in the public eye all the time. My field of choice where I would protect my family, politics. <laughs> had not thought that through very well at all, but... Went off, I have a political science major, was planning on going you know, into law school and then eventually into to public service. Um, God wrestled my heart and brought it to submission to the call to ministry. And, but I was still enamored with politics for a long time, but kind of, I think we all, we get burnt out on that cycle of elections where candidates make these grandiose claims. You know, they're gonna end world hunger and they're gonna turn all of our enemies into our friends and global warming is gonna end when they get elected and you know, you're just like, really? How? You know, how are you going to bring the deficit under control and not raise taxes and not cut spending and we'll all, just how? And it doesn't seem like the claims are ever, uh, the promises are never met. Uh, the expectations are, are, are never met. We've been in this series about rediscovering Jesus and, and spending a lot of time in the Gospels. And in my ACG, we just walked through all four Gospels uh, in the last month. And you read a lot of the people's, well, cynicism, 
and skepticism over the claims that Jesus makes, and you can kind of understand it. I mean, in the decades prior to Jesus' entry into the public scene, there had been a lot of would-be messiahs who had come around and made similar claims. Claims to be the anointed one of God who would lead Israel into freedom, help them throw off the shackles of their bondage, lead revivals and establish true religion and, and bring things back to the way they were supposed to be for the people of God. And always those claims were proven to be empty. So when Jesus steps onto the scene and begins to make claims, you can understand when the people were a little bit cynical. And they thought, how? How are you any different? Well, Luke wants us to know Jesus was different. He made grand claims, and he backed them up. Uh, The story we just had read for us comes out of Luke chapter 4. But I think it's incredibly important to see that story in light of what comes immediately prior in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4 is one of those long chapters in Luke. The beginning of it is Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And as Bob pointed out last week, that means that he can relate to us. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way, just like we are. But he withstood the temptation. And he leaves the wilderness and begins to enter into public ministry. And Luke says he does so full of the power of the Spirit. He goes into public ministry and he begins teaching. One Sabbath, he's in a synagogue and he steps up to read scripture and the scroll of Isaiah is read, handed to him. This is the middle part of Luke chapter four. Jesus opens this scroll of Isaiah to the place where he wants to read. It ends up being Isaiah 61. It's a big scroll. He opens it all the way to near the end. And he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus closes the scroll and sits down. And he says to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is a big claim. Jesus is saying the anointed one, the Messiah, that's what Messiah means, the Christ. I'm him. I'm coming, I'm I'm filled with the Spirit and I'm proclaiming the gospel, good news to the poor and the oppressed. I'm saying prisoners are gonna be set free. There is liberty to be found in me. I am announcing grace and forgiveness and mercy and peace. It is the day of the Lord's favor. I mean, this is, this is like a declaration of war, an emancipation proclamation, and an inaugural speech all rolled up into one. And it caused a stir. I mean, he, he reads this scroll of Isaiah in his hometown. And the people say, isn't this Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son? And it causes such a stir, they're ready to throw him off a cliff. 
But Jesus walks through their midst, and he continues his teaching ministry. He's made these grandiose claims, but now Luke wants us to see he backs up those claims. How does he do it? Does he do it with an army? No. Does he do it with some new social reform plan? No. He does it teaching. And by waging war against darkness that oppresses people, Jesus goes on and he begins preaching. If you're like me, you tend to think of Jesus preaching and teaching as, you know, what he's doing when he's not healing people or performing miracles or casting out demons or going to the cross. But the word proclaiming the good news of the kingdom was at the core of Jesus' ministry. Later on in the chapter, again, it's a long chapter. Later in the chapter, Jesus has been teaching and there's great big crowds around him and he needs to go on and preach in another town, but they're saying, no, don't leave us. They're trying to prevent him from leaving. And he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also because that is why I was sent. Preaching was at the core of his ministry because the message he had was life-giving. It was liberating. He brought truth. In the book of John, Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The gospel of Jesus is good news. I'm emphasizing that because I think it is so easy for us to forget it. It's good news. News that people need and will welcome. We're giving a good gift to people when they tell them, when we tell them of Jesus and his message. When you listen to political pundits, it, you can, sometimes they talk about they've lost control of their message. Uh, they're now on the defensive. They're having to answer criticisms. They're not out there proclaiming their message anymore. I think that sometimes happens to us. There was two summers where I worked for MCI. Do you guys remember MCI, that kind of telecommunications giant of the 90s? And I was one of those people a telemarketer who called you at dinner and tried to convince you to switch from what you really liked and enjoyed to us. Um, And one summer, I killed it. I made money hand over fist. I went back to college, and I I could eat out. It was awesome. (laughs) I mean, we were just selling all the time. It was great. Went back the next summer, and things had entirely changed. A competitor's ad campaign had shaped the message. And now we were on the defensive. Every phone call was, yes, 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 you have to pay to switch. They had sold that, and we lost control of the message. We weren't able to sell our product anymore. I think the same thing can happen in the church. We let the culture shape the message, and we're on the defensive, and 
We're like, yes, 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 it costs something to follow Jesus, but it is good news. His yoke is light, his burden is easy. It is good, life-giving, freeing news. We need to reclaim that. Have confidence, uh, even a holy arrogance in the message. It's good. And Jesus goes and he's preaching this good news and the people are in awe. They're amazed. They, they marvel at his teaching because he teaches as one who has authority. Not as the scribes and the Pharisees who relied on tradition and citing other scribes and other Pharisees. And, no, he spoke and he spoke with authority. Conviction that his news was actually good. But the story gets more interesting. He's teaching in the synagogue on a Sabbath. And a man with an unclean spirit, a demon, comes in and says, Ha! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you here to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. I think it's amazing that the, the demons recognize Jesus They saw his true identity. Earlier in the chapter, when Jesus had made this grand claim, I'm the anointed one, I'm here to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom for those who are in bondage, people said, isn't this Jesus of Nazareth? Yes. But that's not the whole portrait of Jesus. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the man, born of the carpenter, but he's the Holy One of God the anointed one, the one who comes full of the Holy Spirit as well. The demons recognize who he is and they recognize his authority. What have you to do with us? Are you here to destroy us? They understand he has the power and the authority. He can do that. All over the Gospels, the demons are in terror as they confront Jesus In Luke chapter 8, you get a similar kind of story. A man filled with a whole bunch of demons called Legion. They encounter Jesus, and they say, what are you going to do? Are you going to destroy us? And then they beg Jesus, don't throw us into the abyss. Throw us instead into that herd of pigs. You see, Jesus had the authority, the power. He could have done it. In fact, it's one of the reasons he comes is to wage war against Satan and demons and all darkness. But at this point, it's a subversive war. It's not a full-on conflict. It's not pitched battle yet. It will be. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. It's going to happen one day on a cosmic scale. Here it happens in an individual's life. Are you here to destroy us? No, not yet. Someday. Not yet. But be quiet and come out of him. The demon recognizes his authority and submits. He he throws him down but is unable to hurt him and he leaves the man. Jesus has made grand claims. 
And he goes out to back up those claims by teaching and casting out demons. Those seem like very different kinds of things, don't they? One seems fairly normal, mundane almost, teaching, preaching. The other one seems grand, uh, supernatural, big, mysterious. And of course they're different, but not that much. Speaking truth and casting out demons are both instruments that God uses to free people, to free them from their chains, to free them from bondage. And we, we can be so in bondage to lies we believe. It's a more subtle kind of bondage than bondage to a demon, but it's, it's servitude nonetheless. I mean, think about some of the lies we labor under. Lies that God is a taskmaster, and you have to work hard to earn his approval. Or lies that God would never accept a sinner like us. He'll hold our past against us forever. Or maybe it's the lie that God doesn't exist, and so we indulge every passion, every whim we have, thinking that no one's ever going to hold us accountable, and we become a slave to our sin and to our passion. Uh, Lies can ensnare us and leave us in bondage just like demonic forces can. There are spiritual realities, though, that lie behind those lies. It's Satan who is the father of lies. And there are spiritual forces that oppress. Uh, This story, I think, is, is important. There's a lot of stories like this in the Gospels, and they're important because they, they, they shape our lives and our minds. And I think this one shapes us in, in three ways, at least. First, it, it shapes our understanding of the world. It, you could use the phrase, our worldview. How we see and understand things that are going on. Uh, one of my all-time favorite movies is the Kevin Spacey movie, The Usual Suspects. Just, I mean, phenomenal acting, great cast, great plot. It's, I was in a discussion with someone between the services. It's a movie I could watch like every month or so. Uh, it's that good. But there's a line in there. The Kevin Spacey character is Verbal Kent, is his name, or, okay, plug your ears, here's a spoiler, Kaiser Sose. In one of the discussions, the dialogue sections, he says... The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. We live in that world. Or even the majority of Christians don't believe that there is personal evil in the world in the form of demons or Satan. The Gospels confront that and say evil is real and evil is personal. Don't ignore that. I, I think our current state is a, is a pendulum sh- swing. There was times where you know, demons were to blame for everything, and they hud, you know, hide, hide, hidded, behind every corner and in every sneeze. 
and now we act as though they're not real. The story confronts that, and it also reminds us that evil is an intruder whose day is limited. This is going to sound weird, but I love the Bible's teaching on Satan. Please hear that right. I don't, didn't say I love Satan, okay? I love the Bible's teaching on Satan. He was not an original part of God's good creation. He was a rebel who intruded into God's good creation and has sought to destroy God's good creation from the beginning. Why I like that is because it it says this world isn't the way it should be. It's not the way it was intended to be and it's not the way it will always be. Evil is an intruder and its time is limited. Are you here to destroy us, Jesus of Nazareth? No, not yet, but soon. This passage shapes our our view of the world. It also should shape our vision of Jesus. He is the Holy One of God. He is Jesus of Nazareth, and he is the one that has all authority. I mean, throughout the Gospels, you see everything submitting to Jesus. Water submits to Jesus and becomes wine. We'll talk about that tonight at Connection. You see wind and waves submit to Jesus and they get quiet. Fish submit to Jesus and jump into nets. Demons submit to Jesus. They recognize and obey him. Submit to his authority. But what about us? Uh, The people of God. Uh, Do we recognize and submit to Jesus' authority? Or do we treat his commands as good suggestions to be taken under advisement? should shape our understanding of Jesus' authority. Even demons understood and obeyed. It should also shape our understanding of our mission, the the church's mission. Have you ever gotten caught off guard? You, You didn't realize you were in, say, a snowball fight until the first snowball hits you in the face? That's not a fun thing. I remember walking down a path at at a a summer camp one time, and my cousin just walked up and decked me. I mean, square in the jaw. And I had no idea why. I didn't know we were in a fight. I didn't know we were mad at each other. It just completely caught me off guard. The spiritual warfare we're in should not catch you off guard. It's right here out in the open. Jesus says, I'm here. I'm here to confront the face of evil. I'm here to confront the spiritual forces that lie behind all oppression and all sin. Don't be surprised at the battle. 
You're engaged in the battle because you share my mission. And Jesus' mission is grand. It's not just about saving souls, but saving and redeeming people and the entire creation. Jesus says, I am the Messiah, the anointed one of God. I preach good news to the poor. I proclaim liberty to the oppressed. I free the captives. That's my mission. And I share it with you, church. As I was sent, so I send you. Go out. Continue this mission. Carry it on. And we do. We do it as, as we build our churches to be kingdom outposts in this world. As we build our churches to to represent the kingdom of God as Christ wanted it to be, as Christ brought it to us. We do it in, in such a way that all those things that are used outside the confines of the church, all those things that are used to oppress mean nothing inside the walls of the church. Outside, the rich oppress the poor. Inside, there's equity. The rich aren't favored over the poor. Outside, gender can be used to oppress. Inside, there's neither male nor female. Outside, race can be used to suppress and oppress. Inside, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Not barbarian, not Scythian. Outside it could be status. Inside there's neither slave nor free. We come and we welcome all those who have been oppressed and we acknowledge that God has given us liberty, set us free in Jesus Christ. We come in here and we're equipped and re-energized to go back out and be kingdom salt, and be kingdom light. To go out and do kingdom work like Jesus did. Extend compassion to those who need it. Bring liberation to those who are in bondage. Bring healing, bring peace. Preach the good news. And as we do that, we're always inviting people to come and see. Uh, Come and, and meet the one who told me everything I ever did. Come and talk to the one who spoke to me kindly even though I'm an outcast. Come and hear the one who when he spoke, our hearts were burning inside us. Come and meet the one who forgave me of all my sins, welcomed me into his family, restored me to relationship and life and health. We do all these things. Build the church, do kingdom work, invite people, and we do it all with an eye to the clouds, knowing that one day Christ is gonna part those clouds and and come back and wage that final battle. Uh, The battle that began here in his earthly life, he comes back to bring it to conclusion, to destroy darkness, to destroy Satan, eradicate sin and suffering, and usher in the eternal kingdom. We look to the clouds, we wait for that day, 
that gives us our hope, that gives us our, our energy as we go out and continue to do kingdom work and witness to the coming of the kingdom. And we do it all. Hearing Jesus' words, surely I am coming soon. And saying, amen. Come Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the bigness of your mission. You have not abandoned us to the intruder evil. Instead, you've chosen to redeem us even though we have rebelled and sinned. Father, we thank you that your plan includes us but is bigger than us. It includes the whole cosmos. We thank you that you've chosen in your grace to in incorporate us into your mission to include us in the kingdom and send us out as kingdom ambassadors, that is a privilege indeed. We pray that we would be found worthy of that responsibility. We pray that your spirit would equip us even now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.